If you don't have a Bible even here and you don't even own one, on the back table, back where Eric is standing, go grab one. It's yours. It's free. Take it. So you, I don't mind if you stand up now and go grab one. If you, uh, if you want one, you can take it. Uh, take it home with you. Otherwise, you can just look on with your neighbor. So we're going to begin a series today um, called Collision. Collision. Impact that changes lives. And this is going to take us all the way through December. And we're going to be looking at different characters in Scripture who have collided with God, His Word, His community, and whose lives have just been utterly rearranged because of their experience, like Amy's. On the outset, many of my uh, points, I want to let you know, um, they, they are adapted from a message by Tim Keller, and I want to give him credit. In my own study for this week, I was just came back to it, back to it, back to it, a message I heard a while, a long time ago, and I was just impressed with the simplicity of his points, and so I used that to kind of wrap around the message. Isaiah chapter 6, here we go, in verse 1. In the, year that the, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. The sum total of Isaiah's life is called to ministry, which we just read on this disastrous call that God had him on because he's told up front, if you read later on, nobody's going to listen to you. It all can be wrapped up in this one moment of collision that he has with the Lord. One moment of reality. When God moves from out there, a concept out there, to right before Him. A concept that, in the, that was present, you know, in the temple. God was in the temple. God, this is the God of my father, Jacob. This is Israel's God. This is our God. And it moves to this extraordinary weight of reality that leaves Isaiah just leaves him amidst his greatest existential crisis and quaking in his boots. Historically, what, what happens is Isaiah places this during the, the day, during the time where Uzziah died. King Uzziah died. So here's some background. For 52 years, this King Uzziah had led Judah in peace and prosperity. But, but the king had rebelled against the word of God and he died a leper in seclusion from his people. And his son Jotham then reigned. And he was a good king who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but he didn't do exactly what his father didn't do, which was tear down the high places. Nor, did you, nor do we think that he ever entered God's temple 
but instead he just let the people worship false gods. And because all of this was happening, so this is kind of the historical background, because all this was happening, Syria is sitting right at the doorsteps of Judah, the southern kingdom. And at, by this time already, Israel's been conquered by the Assyrians. They've been carted off to Assyria, and the kingdom of Judah is now vulnerable on their northern fronts and on their western fronts. Don't worry, I have no World War II analogies coming after this. That's later. All of this is happening when Isaiah walks into the temple in Jerusalem, presumably, possibly, to offer a sacrifice or pray. We're not sure. But we are sure that whatever it was that he was going to do, he was completely unprepared for what he was going to see, feel, and become. And this is just highly ironic because... Although he's in the temple, the one person you think that he would expect to meet and experience in the temple, God, shows up, completely takes him by surprise. And so why did this collision in his life completely rock his world so much that he says, woe is me. And what he's doing there is he's pronouncing a curse on himself. I'm lost. I am undone. Basically, I am a dead Man, what did he see? Verse 1 says, He saw the Lord sitting on his throne, high and lifted up, and the seraphim, which, which literally means burning one. Cool. <laughs> Calling to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And we can be certain he didn't see the Lord himself, Jehovah, the essence of who God is. But he saw the dominion of God. He saw Adonai and he felt his glory. He felt it because it tells us in Scripture that the foundations of the thresholds of the temple shook at the voice who called him. What's going on here? What's going on here is that in Isaiah's life, God has moved at this moment from a concept to a reality. And every time someone collides with God as reality, there is always a response like Isaiah's. And that's how you know that you've met God. That's how you know. Listen in. Isaiah, in Isaiah 1 through 5, if you read it, Isaiah is pronouncing one woe after another woe to all of the people, all the nations. And now he's caught in the radiance of glory. And Isaiah has this existential crisis. The woe wasn't cultural. The woe was personal. It was, woe is me. Have you felt that? Woe is me. And when God quakes, I become totally undone. I'm lost. I am going to die. And then the seraphim take the coal. They be careful to carry it in tongs. They take it from the altar. You gotta understand, this is the fire of God coming at him. There's nowhere to go. This is wrath. Anywhere in the Bible where you see the fire of God coming, it is always judgment. Blood is shed and God's wrath is then quenched. It's satisfied. And he's bringing it to Isaiah. God is going to kill him. At least that's 
what he's probably thinking. Isaiah's concept of God here moves from a very dreadful reality because when the glory of God shows up on earth, it shakes. In Hebrew, the word glory, kabod, it literally means, this is what it means, weight, heavy. God's glory, His weight, it shakes the earth. Because compared to God, the earth is just unsubstantial. God's glory is, weight, is weightier than anything else. And when God shows up, when God really shows up, the earth is displaced. That's the first thing you have to see. The glory of God quakes, and when it does, everything shifts in that collision. Let me give you an illustration. Most of you are science majors, right? Just kidding, L-Ed majors. Okay. Well, everyone here knows classical mechanics, right? Newton's first law of motion. An object at rest stays at rest unless... Acted, yeah, acted upon by an opposite force. Okay? God as a reality is a force that shakes everything around you. His glory is, is weighty. And every place in the Bible where, you, if you look, every place in the Bible where the glory of the Lord shows up on earth, the earthquakes. When you take a rock and drop it in a full bucket of water, the mass or the weight of that rock displaces the water because it weighs more than the water. It has, in one sense, more glory. And so the water shakes and overflows its container. God's glory is absolute. It is weightier than anything else. It is weightier than the fun you're going to have on the weekend. It is going to be weightier than that girlfriend that you have. It is weightier than the marriage you're going to have. It's absolute. It's ultimate. And compared to God, everything, even the earth itself, is comparatively weightless. Nothing. Nothing else matters when you compare it to God. And so up until this time, God has been a concept to Isaiah. There's a great difference between God as a concept and God as reality. You see, because God is a concept in your life, God is lighter than you. If God is a concept to you, God is lighter than you. He fits into whatever ideological beliefs that you have. You shape it. He doesn't shape you. You shape that God and you give Him whatever space you want. You move God as a concept around to fit and change whatever it is that you want in your life. It has no shaping influence in you because God as a concept is lighter than you. It, it has no shaping influence on you. It has no weight. God as a concept is just not ultimate because God as a concept has no ultimate impact on you. It's not this weighty collision that we see happens with Isaiah. But God as a reality is heavier than you. When you get into the presence of God as a reality, it shapes you. Because the glory of God is ultimate. Tim Keller says this about this passage. He says, when God quakes, there is always, always a self-quake. If God quakes... There is always a self-quake. 
Every single person who has experienced this collision, this weight of God, where God has moved from this concept to a very real and very big reality, has always also had a corresponding self-quake. For Amy, July 14th, is that what you said? Okay. You know it. You, you know it. You have felt it. God has moved from that concept out there to a very re big reality in front of you. Listen, Peter's out fishing and Jesus fills the boat with fish. And in the wake of that collision, he says, depart from me. I am a sinful man. Self-quake. Job says, I have heard you, but now I see you. Listen to his collision. He says, therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. John sees in his vision the likeness of Christ. And he falls flat on his face like a dead man. Ezekiel collides with the reality of the weightiness of God in a vision. And he describes, listen, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. It's like three times removed. When he experienced that, he says, I fell on my face. Listen, you know if you've experienced God as reality or, or simply you've experienced reality in life when you experience this self-quake. And every person who experiences God, this is true because God's weight has impact in your life. You know it. You've felt it. God has moved from someone out there to someone I need to deal with. Because God as a reality is heavier than you. When you give, when you get into the presence of the real God, when you are there, everything gives way to His glory. And when the collision between a person and God happens, that person's life is just rearranged. It, it, it can't help but get rearranged. That's what it means to experience God. God no longer fits my agenda. When you experience God as reality, as, as this weight, God becomes my agenda. My experience of God changes the very fabric of my life. What is that like? What is that like? What, what happens in a life when, when God is truly experienced? And we're starting with this today as we move into the series because this is the beginning point. But what is it like? Three things I want you to see here. Okay, three things. One, there's a profound experience of beauty. There's a profound experience of beauty. Two, there's a profound experience of humility. And thirdly, there's a profound experience of cleansing, forgiveness. Isaiah's experience is a clue to whether or not we've really met with God or have been rearranged by Him. First, when we look back in the passage, a profound experience of beauty the seraphim called to one another, holy, 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 three times. Now in Scripture, whenever you see repeated words, if you're reading the Bible, it, those words are repeated to give an emphasis. And here, God just isn't holy. He's like holy times three, right? That's, there's nothing holier than Him. He's like the ultimate champion of holiness, right? The Hebrew here denotes sacred. He's totally distinct from what is common. He's completely set apart. That's His holiness. He's not just sacred. He's, he's sacred, sacred, 
sacred. This is just who God is and what makes God utterly distinct from anything we will ever experience on earth is His holiness. The seraphim aren't calling out, love, love, love. That was a Beatles song. Although God is love, they aren't calling out mercy, although God is merciful. They aren't calling out strength, although He's stronger than everything. They're saying, holy, holy, holy. And they are captivated and simply ascribing to God His ultimate beauty. Listen, holiness is such a fascinatingly unique attribute of God because it exists for no benefit to you or I, you or I, except to describe who God is. Every other attribute that belongs to God, it has some benefit to you. God's love benefits you. God's mercy benefits you. God is forgiver benefits you. God is redeemer benefits you. God is healer benefits you. God is peace benefits you. God is rewarder benefits you. God is shepherd benefits you. But God is holy has no benefit to you. It is just who He is. And if God has quaked in your life and you've collided with Him, you find yourself in the midst of this holiness. This is where Isaiah found himself. And what makes God the most beautiful, awesome reality in your life is His holiness. For those who have experienced God, you experience a profound sense of beauty. You also experience a profound sense of humility. Isaiah is completely and utterly here left without pretense as the weight of God presses on him. Listen, when God is a reality, there is always a shocking awareness of who we really are. The reality of God leaves us with this a very acute and utterly real experience of me. Isaiah says, under the weight of God, he says, woe is me. I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. Why does he say that? Well, he tells us at the end of verse 5, For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. There's no pretense in this at all. There is no sense of, of, of that with Isaiah. And there is none when you experience this collision with God. You are completely stripped of everything that you think you are when you meet God. Instead, you're left with just really who you are an unclean person in the presence of awesome holiness. It's like Peter said, away from me, I am a sinful man. Here's how, they, here's how you know that you've begun to move into the presence of the real God, that you've begun to have God move into reality in your life. You say, I am woefully short of you. I'm a sinner. I am lost. And listen, that's a good thing. Some of you might be thinking, that's terrible. I mean, how is that helpful for anybody? How is that helpful? We have so many people walking around thinking they're just nothing. Doesn't God love them? I mean, that's what they need to know. Absolutely. They do. They will. And Isaiah does. But not the way we naturally want it to happen. Because most of us are, are really just so self-absorbed that it's hard to see past our, our own desire just to feel good. I see it every single night that I drive home on campus. We don't see our great need. And God is the only one who sees past all of our felt needs in our life. 
to what we truly, really need. And unless we experience this profound sense of humility, we can be certain we have not experienced God as reality in our life. Because God's reality is so real that Isaiah said, Woe is me, I am cursed. It's not these people, it's all of those people plus me. And I get the picture that whatever game he thought he had, he suddenly was imploding and just giving way to God's holiness. And that's humility. And tradition says that Isaiah was royalty. He was the nephew of the king. And he was brought up with privilege. It also says, tradition also says he was a fantastic communicator. And to be a fantastic communicator in an oral culture is like rad. Okay? Coming back. And possibly the very thing that was wrong with him, in humility he saw, he knew, his lips were unclean before the Lord. In the presence of God, we are just immediately sized up. When God is reality, there's nowhere to go. Nowhere to go. And we're left with this profound recognition and awareness of, of who we really are before Him. And when you have a collision with God, all that you are will get rearranged. I can remember when this happened in my life. At 16, a friend invited me to this really big church up in the Burbs. It was my first church experience in like five years. And I loved it. Loved it. And for three years, I loved it. And I also walked away pretty confident that Jesus was the Christ. He was the king. He was even my king. And life for me just kept right on trucking. Not a whole lot changed. I went to church. I said prayers. Man, I even told people about Jesus. I was like an evangelist. I didn't even know him. And, but all of that fit into the identity of what I wanted. It allowed me to feel, man, I'm important. I got a role. And my concept of God seemed to allow me to feel value. In 1993, at 19 years old, in July, the summer after my freshman year, I was reading a book, a very short book called More Than a Carpenter. A man had given my father that book on a plane because he was talking to him about Jesus. My dad walks down the stairs and he says, Son, you're the religious one in the family. You might want to read that. And I said, You bet I am. And I devoured that book. Ten short chapters, nine chapters that talk about the historicity of Jesus, the prophecies there, the archaeological evidence and how Jesus really is the Messiah. Then you turn to the last chapter and it's entitled, He Changed My Life. I closed the book and I wept. God had not changed my life. That moment was a moment of collision for me. Saying, Lord, if there's anything in my life that you want, take it. I want Jesus. You see, the minute that Isaiah confessed who he was before the Lord, that was the moment that the Lord moved. That was the moment when God's glory falls and the earth quakes and you shake. God explodes in your life in a way that up until that point, listen, until that point, it's not real. And when the seraphim took the fire of God and brought it to him, he knew that the holy God was meeting the unholy him. And he probably thought he was getting burned up but instead of consuming him, it cleansed him. How does that happen? 
I mean, how is that possible? 600 years after Isaiah's collision with God, we read about another earthquake. In Scripture it says, from the sixth hour to the ninth hour there is darkness over the land. Matthew 27, the earth shook, the rocks split, and the one who came not to condemn, but to be condemned, Jesus placed himself on the altar of God to be a sacrifice for those who put their faith in him. Now the fire that consumes and condemned Jesus now cleanses because woe is me? I'm lost? I'm undone? All of that has been paid in Christ. He became undone so that you would experience God as reality, not as a fire that consumes, but one who cleanses. And it reaches down to our deepest needs, forgiveness, reconciliation, restoration. We, we have that when we come to God face to face with Jesus. And all of us one day will experience that. We will come face to face. And the reality of the presence of God soon, soon, will be that our sin has already been dealt with for those who have experienced that reality in Christ. Moving into reality with God is an event of seemingly it's this contradictory events that happen all at the same time. I'm lost. I'm a dead man. It's acknowledgement of repentance. But God comes and cleanses at that very moment through Christ where I could not stand before. I can. I have forgiveness and acceptance. I'm loved beyond my wildest imagination. It means that both of these things are true in God's presence at the very same time. I'm undone, but I'm always remade. That's the only way you can be sure of anything. That bittersweet taste of just seeing your sin and grieving it and being at the same time satisfied that you never have to bear it, that Jesus bore it for me. It's hard to, it's hard to grasp sometimes. This leads Isaiah to offer his response to God. By the way, is it 112 degrees in here? Yes. All right. I thought it was just me. Someone bring me a towel. All right. This leads Isaiah to offer his response to God. And we see this in verse 8. You look at verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. Immediately after the cleansing, God rearranges his priorities. And we shouldn't be surprised by this at all. If God is real and holy and loving and revealing his glory in the shaking of the earth, then there is nothing bigger than God's priorities. And I was standing here worshiping. I go, man, wouldn't it be cool if this place just was filled? It's a dream we have. We just want to fill this with people who are worshiping the Lord. God rearranges his priorities. We have a saying in, in Cornerstone, change lives equals change spaces. Change lives always equals change spaces. God had reordered Isaiah's life in the natural response when God invites us to join, join him in the changing of the world in the question, who should I send? He says, here I am. Send me. Why? Why, why does he say that? 
we're going to end with this. It's kind of where we've started in the beginning. Send me whatever it is. Whatever. I don't care. Why would he say that? I mean, he says, send me, and God hasn't even given him the plan. <laughs> it sounds risky. Listen, when, when there's a collision of God's glory in your life, and you're left, you're left with one response, only one response is necessary. The seraphim were calling out to one another, holy, 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 God, you are so set apart, you are so indescribably and immeasurably more, you are holy, you are sacred, nothing, nothing compares to you. And when you get to that point, you are being released to do what the fragile human heart, listen, the fragile human heart was created to do in the beginning and reflecting back to God His infinite value, His infinite worth. Worship. Send me. I give completely to the One who gave me everything and never will I lose anything in whom I've been found. Send me. That's real worship. Everything in my life can be traced back to that moment in 1993. It all started there. It goes back to there and it continues to flow from here. You were created for worship. And I don't know where each one of you are individually here in your journey with God. But we pray that God's glory would fall tonight, this week this semester and that the love of Jesus would just shake you and burst in your life this year as you respond the way that God meant you to respond in worship. We're going to go into a time of communion right now. Um, let's see what time it is. Somebody yell it out. Need to wait. All right. Go into a time of communion. And we're going to try to do this about each and every time we meet. Um, why don't you guys just listen? I'm going to, while, while Matt's playing, I'm just going to tell you guys a story about what communion's about. And then I'm just going to leave you guys room to, to go ahead and take communion. The way that we do it um, here is you take a, when you're ready, break off a piece of bread. And, and dip it in the container, the juice. And whenever you're ready, you can take communion. Okay. You know, the communion is just an ancient, ancient practice. It goes back a long, long time. Alright? In the beginning, in the beginning, okay, Moses went to the Israelites. And this is the Passover, because in the Passover, Jesus was sitting in the upper room with his friends. And it was then that he broke bread at the Passover and gave it to his friends saying, eat this. He's practicing a very, very long tradition that goes all, all the way back, you know, hundreds and thousands of years, all the way back to the Exodus. When God, when God had said that during the last plague, the plague of the death of the, 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 the firstborn, 
that the Israelites were to take a lamb and to cut him open and to take the blood and spread it over the door for him. And anybody who, who did that, the angel, when passes by, would see that, be satisfied with that, and would pass over, leaving that family spared. And we fast forward into the New Testament, and there's Jesus walking, coming forward to John the Baptist, one of the greatest prophets, and John says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so Jesus is now sitting with his friends in the upper room and he breaks the bread and giving it to his disciples. He says, take this and eat this. This is my body which is broken for you. And then he takes the cup likewise and he passes it to his friends and he says, drink this. This is the cup of the new covenant sealed in my blood for you, for the forgiveness of sins. And that's what communion, this is part of the story of communion. And so tonight, if you, here in Cornerstone, if you've had that collision with God and God is a reality in your life and, and you know Him, you're saying, Jesus, I, I trust you. You died for me. And I love you. I love you. I receive that tonight. Then go ahead and take communion. Um, if not, that's okay. Let that pass. Just, just don't worry about that. We're all at a different place in our journey, but I want to invite those who, who, uh, who know the Lord Jesus to go ahead and take communion. And so I'll give you guys a couple minutes. I've got the table in the back and the table over here while Matt plays, and then I'll close this in prayer, and then we'll keep going for the evening. Thanks.